And hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome back to another episode of This Show is All About You, a show about all the ways in which you and me connect as we and what that means for all of us. I am your host, as always, J.D.K. Winnikin. You can find out more about me at my website, which is wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find me on my social media feeds at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you should find me rather easily. would love to chat with you about the show or whatever else uh, happens to be going on with you. Uh, would love to chat with you. Welcome to episode 55, everyone, for January 24th of 2022. And the title of today's show, picking up right off of last week's show about Martin Luther King Jr., the title of today's show is The Obstacle is the Way. The Obstacle is the Way. I'll uh, explain that in just a minute. Uh, but the haiku, haiku that goes with it, my weekly haiku, goes this way. The most unwieldy of tools becomes an asset with practice and time. The most unwieldy of tools becomes an asset with practice and time. And so just to explain what the title comes from and what that has to do with last week's conversation about Martin Luther King Jr., it's interesting because it, it's not a quote from MLK. It's actually the name of a book uh, by a, a book about stoicism by an author named Ryan Holiday. And the idea of the obstacle is the way, though, fits a lot with what I think uh, what I was going to pick up with from last week's discussion in that uh, what the book t- argues is that essentially what causes us the most suffering in our lives are the obstacles that we run into. And because of that, we resist them. But instead, the suggestion is instead of resisting that obstacle, use it. <laughs> instead of fighting it, make it a tool. Um, have it be something that becomes something you work with than something that you fight against. And uh, I discovered that with, a, with the help of a friend of mine. And it got me thinking, how could I transition from last week to, to this week in uh, my continued discussion of Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy and uh, really what we can do with a lot of his ideas in the here and now. And uh, I ended up in a lot more, much more of a contemplative space for this week uh, than, than oftentimes I often do. When I, when I come into this show, oftentimes I have a list of where, what I'm going to talk about, the quotes that I want, where I'm going to go, the main points I'm going to make. And I certainly have some of that today, but um, I'm in a lot more of a wondering space. <laughs> and so sometimes that wondering space might sound like a wandering space. Here we go. If, uh, but if you're willing to sort of ride this with me, uh, I'd appreciate it. And uh, just a quick reminder of a couple things last week. Really, the themes that came out of last week's discussion, Martin Luther King Jr., was a lot of his ideas about the need for us to become comfortable with discomfort for us to take a look at uh, the uncertainties of our lives as a reason to not only have faith in something bigger than us, but as a reason to connect with one another around that universal truth that we are all here together and we are all created equal. Uh, those were some of the big, the big takeaways for last week. And uh, I also, he also had some thoughts to say about notions of justice. What's an unjust law? What is a just law? And uh, it certainly challenged me around those things if, if as he said, um, a just law is one that raises the human personality and an unjust law is one that pushes it down. Uh, it's a challenge to all of us, I think, in taking a look at all the things that we believe in and the law, which laws we support and which ones we don't, um, as to whether they really fit that calculus or not. And what would that mean for us 
um, if they didn't. And certainly what I kind of pulled out of all these things together was this notion that um, if we truly believe that we can be at peace with one another without discomfort, uh, I think it's a fallacy. <laughs> and I think he did too. And he certainly was not shy uh, in having difficult conversations. And that is cer- certainly one of the greatest gifts that I think he brought to the table. And uh, he certainly, in the time in which he was operating and taking on desegregation, uh, was not happy with those who said it needs to take time, it needs to go slowly. Uh, and he pointed out that you know when, when groups of people or individuals are really under the thumb of injustice, it's really hard for them to want to say, yes, it can just take its time and take its time. So, you know, and I used the example last week of, of non-Nazis in Germany during World War II. You know, what do they do? Um, should they have resisted more? Should they have gotten out of their own comfort zones despite the fact that um, their own individual lives may have been improving with having jobs and living in a society that was largely crime-free? Should they have done more in the face of the clear injustice of Nazi ideology, Nazi law, Nazi practices. And certainly that's been something that Germany as a nation has been wrestling with ever since. Okay, so all of those things taken together, I covered a lot last week, and I just plain ran out of time, as you might remember. And so I want to pick up with that. And so I've had a week to really sit and, and think about these things. And uh, in this wondering contemplative state that, that I got into, in thinking about this, rather than go back to other things that Martin Luther King Jr. may have said and did say in his life and uh, all the different things that came from his advocacy in terms of laws, in terms of changes in society, great quotes from his rhetoric and the like, I started wondering about something. And I wondered how it would be if I ever had the chance to sit in a room with him one-on-one. And I actually spent some time sitting and kind of feeling my way through this, what that would have been like. We've all had the, uh, we've all had the question asked of us before, if you could invite five historical figures to dinner, <laughs> you know, uh, who would you invite and, and why and what would you talk about? And, and those are really fun exercises. Uh, but in this case, I thought about him one-to-one. And what was interesting about that is that the very nature of that conversation would be a personal one because it would just be the two of us, you know? And what things will we talk about? What questions would I ask? What, uh, what common ground would we find? And I think we would have a lot of common ground on a lot of things. I also wonder how comfortable it would be. <laughs> you know, I don't think it would always be very comfortable. Uh, I would hope it would be very honest, and I hope it would be very heartfelt, And I hope it would be one uh, where both of us were seeking understanding um, and seeking, above all, connection. And I also anticipate that by the time it was done, I would walk out of it (laughs) changed in some ways, uh, in maybe some significant ways, challenged uh, in other ways. Not just because of that this is a a great human being that I was sitting in, a famous one, and, and, and listening to him and taking in his thoughts and, and his ideas and the experience of him. But because that is just simply the nature of one-to-one conversations when they're connected. Even relationships that we have with people that are longstanding, our closest friends, 
if we're really in connection with them at any given moment, we walk out of that connection changed in some way by the time it's done. And if you're wondering where I'm going with this, again, just keep floating with me. I keep coming back to something that I think was fundamental in Martin Luther King's, not just in his thinking and in his rhetoric, but in how he lived his life. The connection back to that thing that connects all of us, our shared humanity, and in his mind, our shared, we certainly come from something larger than ourselves, our connection to something larger than ourselves, and the inherent value of every single human being just on the basis of being a human being. And he was maybe more so than a lot of famous individuals in history was really connected to that about himself and about those people around him, maybe more so than many others were, or at least as consistently, more consistently than that. And what was interesting about that is it didn't prevent him, even though he saw these things that all humans had in common, I think he came from a place that knowing himself, being connected to himself and that larger sense of who he was and being able to connect to people one-on-one, he had a gift of being able to connect with people who were different than him and be okay with that and see their differences, maybe not agreeing with them, maybe would never agree with them, but still being able to see their humanity. Even if he walked out of an interaction with them Um, and he was frustrated or angry or disagreed with them, he still did not let that take him into a place where he demonized others, where he tore them down, and where he stopped believing in the ability of human beings to change if they connected with those best parts of themselves. And if you take a look from that perspective at a lot of what he wrote and a lot of what he said, You'll see that he brings, he uses examples all the time that brings people back to that key point of connection with self and with other people and what they might have in common and an ability to accept difference. It's all through his I Have a Dream speech. And in his letter from from Birmingham jail, he brings the examples back to children when he talks about the effects of injustice. He focuses on the experience of young children, young black children learning that they are not seen as equal and treated as equal in the country of their birth and what that does to them. There's something that he understood, I think, when talking about children that can strip down the barriers that we build up, that can tear down the prejudices that we can throw at one another as adults. Children soften us, (laughs) seem to. And he embraced that. Now, he embraced that in part because he was a Christian teacher and preacher, and Jesus of Nazareth embraced the same thing and preached the same way, you know, and talked about children in the same way. It's a way that disarms us. And interestingly enough, however, by using that example, it was also something that I think he understood could be empowering. And that brings it back around to the obstacle is the way. (laughs) If, If the obstacles around finding a more just society or more equal society or more equitable society are kind of how we confront each other as adults. If we focus and take a look at children, for example, and it softens us, suddenly it opens us up to the possibility maybe of taking that thing, that obstacle, 
and making it an asset. Okay, so we have these disagreements now as adults. What can conversations, what actions can we take? What connecting can we find that would maybe remove those things for our children as they grow older? And we give it a lot of lip service, right? We talk about creating a better future for our children all the time. Everybody does. Every politician seemingly puts it in every single speech that they give. Yet what does that mean? And as I sat this week contemplating what it would be like to have a one-on-one conversation with this man, and then kind of thought about one-on-one conversations I have with the people that are close to me, I started to see that in that sense, and those obstacles as they are, we tend to just simply reinforce them over and over and over again, despite rhetoric that says otherwise. And so that suggests, suggests to me a couple of things. One, no matter how many words we throw around, no matter how many books are written, no matter how many opinions are given, um, at some point that just becomes noise that distracts us from really where the true work is. Maybe we have enough work. I'm wondering. Maybe we have enough books. I'm wondering. Maybe what we don't have enough of is a willingness to, I don't know, connect with that childlike part of ourselves or that, that equivalent of putting our arms down when we talk about children, when we talk about ourselves, when we confront ourselves, when we take a look at maybe what our own issues are, what our own prejudices are, our own failings, our own fears then maybe we don't need any more words (laughs) on that. Then maybe what we need, just like we do in the connections and the conversations we have with those that we are close with, is that recognition of ourselves as valuable, that recognition of the other person across from us as valuable, even if we differ from them. And uh, so these are the things I'm... These are the things I'm wondering about. I have some other thoughts. Um, Stacy, are you waving at me because you have something you're you're thinking about? My producer has been trying to get my attention for five minutes. <laughs> yeah, I totally do. Okay. Okay. So <clears throat> I'm loving what you're talking about this, especially the work that you do with Ask, right, and children. Mm-hmm. And the whole dream thing, um, if you were to meet with Martin Luther King, you if it was at the time when he was um, alive and doing his work, he wasn't yet the icon. I mean, yes, he was well known and, you know, whatever. However, it's not the same thing. And so for him, he would have just been doing the work Mm -hmm. and saying the things that he had to say. Mm -hmm. And how interesting that he used the powerful words of, I have a dream Mm -hmm. because as adults, we forget to dream Mm -hmm. and children dream. And so the idea (laughs) that as an adult, you can have a dream and that he went about making that dream come true. That's a great point. Okay. That's a great point. Thank you for that. Um, And for, for two reasons. First, I think you're exactly right. He, his, I have a dream speech captures that excitement that childlike enthusiasm and belief we have in dreams and the necessity of having them, right? And then having the ability to pursue them. And then, of course, him suggesting, shouldn't all children have the equal opportunity to pursue their dreams, 
right? So that's the first reason I appreciate you saying that. Second reason is uh, you mentioned Airway Science for Kids. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I forgot to mention them at the top of the hour. Thank you to Airway Science for Kids for sponsoring this show. Uh, and this does this conversation does fit in with all that because they help kids discover dreams, maybe in aviation and aerospace, that maybe they didn't know they could have or that they didn't know they could pursue uh, because of, for whatever reason, right? For some of these kids, it's because they're little girls and there's little girls, who, a lot of them, who think that becoming a pilot or an astronaut is something only boys can do. It's not true, but there are still people who believe that. You know, or maybe they're from other underserved communities that just don't have the same um, access to quality education and funds to pull these things. And, and Airway Science for Kids looks to, to remedy that uh, with the kids that they work with. And so this does fit in well with them. So thank you to Airway Science for Kids. You can check them out at airside.org, by the way. Thank you for reminding me of that. But, you know, and so, and it actually brings me into uh, an example I was going to use with this, you know, talking about, talking about dreams that um, is going to sound really contrary to, you know, an imaginary sit down with Martin Luther King Jr., but I think does apply. And I'm going to see how well I do with this. Um, talking about a dream and being able to build towards that and what that takes. Uh, the example I want to use is the, is the moon landing, the Apollo program. You know, and it fits in well with Airway Science for Kids also. So see how that works. Um, you know, and it, it got me thinking about dreams. And the thing about dreams as well is dreams require, as I've been learning recently, dreams require um, more than usually more than one person to make them come true. Right? Dreams require other things to happen. One can say my dream is to become su- such and such or become famous or uh, publish a book in my case, that type of thing. I only have so much say in that process, right? <laughs> I have a dream to do various things, but it requires other people to help me reach it if I'm going to reach it. Goals that I have can be more individual and I can have more direct control over, right? So if I have a dream of something larger, I can make goals of things that I can actually control to take myself there, right? And I think Martin Luther King Jr. understood that very, very well. And so putting this in the context of the moon landing, we know the Apollo astronauts, particularly Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, because they were the first two to land there. We know those names really well. Uh, What we don't know nearly as well is the names of the tens of thousands of other people that were required in the Apollo program to essentially develop everything that made it possible for them to go there in the first place. Now, Armstrong, Aldrin, and others had goals of wanting to do that and the goals to become an astronaut, you had to be able to do certain things, right? You had to, certainly you had to be a pilot. That was required. You had to be a really good pilot. (laughs) You had to be really smart, right? So you had to have a lot of, of intellectual aptitude. You had to be really strong physically. You had to be really strong emotionally. Uh, and they tested you on all of these things. And a number of people who wanted to become astronauts washed out of the program. And yet those were the goals they could set for themselves. I could do those things. But they didn't have a whole lot of say in the design of the vehicles that was going to take them into space, the one that was going to land them on the moon, uh, what they were going to be made out of, who was going to be building what components. Um, they had very little control over what happened once they were out there beyond just being able to steer the aircraft, the spacecraft here and there. And in the end, of course, the program was successful. But a number of people with individual goals 
and a buy-in to that larger dream of putting someone on the moon. All that together with a lot of time, a lot of mistakes, and yeah, uh, it cost some lives, right? The three Apollo 1 astronauts who died on the launching pad right, in a fire come to mind immediately. All of that is what was required to help that dream become reality. It required a lot of people with those individual goals, with their own unique sets of gifts, with their own perspectives, to be able to have tough conversations about what was the right way, what was the best way to do something. Putting forward ideas and having being willing to have them shot down or dismissed or to have them proven incorrect and needing to adjust or having to redesign things entirely. Everyone had to be on board with that if this was going to go somewhere. Everybody had to, in the case of uh, their own reputations, put them on the line for something bigger. And of course, that, become, that became one of the greatest accomplishments in human history, maybe the greatest in terms of technological accomplishments. Because it signified something much bigger than just going to the moon. It signified that what people once thought was impossible and would never be possible could become possible if enough people invested in the idea that it was and were willing to embrace difference, to accept that, and to still work within it for the achievement of a larger goal. And, you know, and so it's sometimes when I hear people say about Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream of an equitable society where people are judged on the content of their character rather than on the color of their skin, when I hear some people say that, yeah, it's just a, it's just a dream, it's a goal, it's never going to be reality, that's why I think of the moon landing, I go, well, why not? The difference isn't in... The scope of the dream, they're both big and they're two various kinds, very different kinds of dreams. But the moon landing happened because enough people in enough places in enough ways decided to go after it and to make what was once impossible possible. And even then it was still risky. <laughs> even then it was still imperfect. Not everything went according to plan. <laughs> and the program never became what people hoped it would. But nevertheless, that major dream became a reality. And that, of course, has allowed subsequent in our own day and age. Now we're talking about going back to the moon, going to Mars and going even beyond that. Because we know we can already take that one step. We've taken that big one already. We know we can land on a body in outer space. It's a big deal. But all of that comes back to... <laughs> individual conversations among individual people who had a bigger part to play in the success of the Apollo program. Was it the astronauts themselves? Was it the designers of the rockets or was it people like Jules Verne writing in the 19th century in from the earth to the moon, a dream about being able to go and that this was something that human beings could do who contributed more? Well, the easy answer is they all contributed. It doesn't have to be quantified. Without the dream and without the advocacy, without the belief or the willingness to take that obstacle, this is impossible, and make that the way, without that willingness, none of it happens. If that's applicable to the moon landing dream, it's applicable to any dream, including big social 
justice, dreams, call it what you will, that we have today, like Martin Luther King Jr.'s, that is still a dream. And so where does that start? I would suggest it starts in those one-to-one conversations, whether it's with Martin Luther King Jr. in my own mind or whether it's literally with the people that we're closest to or maybe somebody at our workplace we don't get along with (laughs) and we try to bridge the gap. Maybe with someone in our family or our friend circle who doesn't agree with us on a lot of things maybe in politics or whatever. Maybe it's connecting with ourselves first so that wherever the differences are, we can accept those. And then because we're able to accept those and not be blocked by that obstacle, we can use that as the way to see the areas where there are things in common. Martin Luther King Jr. liked to encourage people to find that space by talking about kids to soften them. So there are ways to do it with those people that we're close to and maybe estranged from in these years because of differences on political opinions or social opinions. Maybe just sharing vulnerably that you miss how connected we once were. We'd like it to be again. Maybe have a conversation about the things that we don't understand about each other or what seems to have changed reaffirming the love we can still have for one another despite the differences we may have. And accepting that change happens, that change is that constant, constant reality. But all of that can make dreams become reality on a personal level and on a larger level. So that's what I've been wondering about (laughs) today. And uh, I hope you're all able to follow that, float down the stream with me uh, on this on this episode of This Show Is All About You. Uh, if you have thoughts on it, I would love to hear from you at my social media feeds or at my website, wordsbyjdk.com. Uh, and certainly I'll have more thoughts on things like this in the future. So thank you for spending some time with me today on this episode. I uh, hope it was interesting. I hope it was insightful. I hope it was inspiring. Uh, I hope it gave you some things to think about and to connect with people over. So thanks for uh, listening in, everybody. And until next week, chins up, everyone.